Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, Learning from the Leaders with me, Beth Crackles. This is episode 14 and I'm joined by Louise Firth, who is Director of Fundraising at Refuge and formerly Director of Fundraising at Stonewall. In this podcast, we talk about the new fundraising strategy at Refuge, some of the opportunities and challenges facing fundraising for difficult causes, in inverted commas. But the main focus of the podcast is to discuss the Institute of Fundraising's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Strategy. Louise was a member on the expert advisory panel of the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, which was a volunteer committee that collectively developed the strategy. You can find the strategy at the Institute of Fundraising's website. We cover the drivers for the strategy, the four equalities that are being addressed, the 16 initial activities of the strategy, and we talk about some things in more detail, such as affinity networks, what it means to be a role model, how we can work with the corporate sector, and what you can do to support the development of a more equal, diverse and inclusive sector. I hope you find this podcast useful. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, I'm joined by Louise Firth, who is Director of Fundraising at Refuge and is a member of the Expert Advisory Panel on Equality, Diversity and Inclusion with the Institute of Fundraising. Hello, Louise. Hi, Beth. Good morning. Monday morning. Yeah. With an amazing view. It is very special. Amazing skyline. Today, we're going to talk about, predominantly going to talk about the EDI strategy Mm -hmm. of the Institute of Fundraising, and a little bit about Refuge as well. So do you want to start off by giving us a bit of a background on yourself? Sure, definitely. I have been a fundraiser for around 11 years now. My career before fundraising was within a creative agency doing lots of amazing events, rewards and recognition, um, experiences with FTSE 100 companies. So very, very corporate. Um, And I knew quite early on that I really wanted to sort of aligned to my personal values and work in the third sector and I had a um, sort of pro bono client that was a national charity. I ended up going to work for them, they're called the Willow Foundation and I transitioned over to um, in the events event space so early part of my fundraising career was in special events, participation events um, and then sort of more high value. I moved to the NSPCC, one of the amazing giants of our sector mm. and I was there for around four years and Learned just a huge amount and yeah, I definitely became very enriched from that experience and, and worked very hard as well, gave a lot got, gave a lot to them. Um, I helped create their LGBT network um, and just did a, yeah, did a huge amount to make that organisation more inclusive and diverse. But it's it's a long journey and there's there's still lots to do everywhere we go. During that sort of journey, I worked with Stonewall, the LGBT equality charity. And again, these kind of opportunities come up and they were recruiting for a director of fundraising. And whilst I wasn't really done with um, NSPCC, I thought this is a kind of dream. As a lesbian, I was, I'd love to work for Stonewall and it's fundraising. So yeah, I interviewed and was, was privileged and lucky enough to move across. Then I had two and a half years at Stonewall, um, which was, again, another amazing experience. I really felt like I honed my leadership style my leadership experience and skills and yeah had the whole diverse portfolio of income streams during that time I then became um, a trustee for a women's organization called ICRO they were kind of founded by an amazing Iranian woman um, and ICRO stands for the Iranian and Kurdish women's rights organization 
is actually quite broad. They support lots of other women as well. Um, and yeah, I've always been a huge, huge feminist um, and loved women's women's organisations. So again, that was great to have a non-exec role and help help lead an organisation. And then the role came up at Refuge and a wonderful um, recruiter came knocking at my door. I didn't think I was ready to leave Stonewall. I still had so much more to do. I'd achieved a lot, but I'd also made, you know, mistakes and were learning from those and yeah, still had much more to give. And I'm sure Stonewall had much more to give to me as well. But I supported Refuge financially and I thought, right, I've got to go for this opportunity. And yeah, I've been here for the last 10 months thoroughly enjoying my experience it's very very challenging so you've got really small charity experience and then obviously huge shift to work at an SPCC I think working from from major charity like that like I started at RNIB and just the experience that you get is is just amazing isn't it and the investment that you get as well is really really great I guess you've had to do quite a lot of taboo busting Mm. in your more recent roles around sort of women's rights and domestic abuse and gay rights and things like that. Quite a rocky road, I imagine. Yeah, generally the golden thread that's pinned everything together is human rights. So Mm. I really believe in equality for all. So yeah, whether that is tackling complex social issues like child abuse, violence against women and girls, or dealing with transphobia, biphobia, homophobia, in our society they're all as you say quite challenging topics but yeah I feel quite honoured and privileged that I get to help tell stories and affect change and help kind of society move on and generate money I definitely am a proud fundraiser hashtag proud fundraiser that's a tick box for the for the IOF IOF chat (laughs) (laughs) my role at refuge it's been 10 months it's the first time they've ever had a director of fundraising so before there was um, a kind of comms marketing fundraising external relations team and the trustees about 18 months ago were like we really want to invest in voluntary income so let's invest in the fundraising team so it's a really unique opportunity actually I've had Mm. the chance to kind of come in recruit a team which again I'm incredibly proud of got a really diverse and expert expert team and we're creating a strategy which is aligned to refuges organizational plans and strategies but more not necessarily more importantly but I always think that culture eats strategy for breakfast don't know who Mm. said that phrase but it's a it's a good one that I've really been building the fundraising team's culture and also building and making sure that there's a culture of fundraising within the organization Mm. and what we're here to predominantly talk about today equality diversity and inclusion so yeah it's been a really eye-opening um experience to kind of build and professionalize the fundraising team here the rest of the sea management team is very very established everyone's been here a very long time so having I guess some diversity of thought at the boardroom table has been well hopefully has been helpful I definitely feel like I'm helping affect change and and moving moving refuge on I guess one of the challenges with fundraising for an organisation like Refuge is that violence against women and girls and domestic violence is quite a difficult thing to talk about. Well, not it's not that it's a difficult thing to talk about, but it's a difficult thing, thing for people to hear about. You know, they don't want to think about it, even though it's more prevalent than people would expect. They yeah. don't necessarily want to think that that could be happening to someone that they know or love or that, that, that they're very good friends with. And a lot of people who have 
been a victim don't necessarily want to share their story because it it makes you very vulnerable, doesn't it? Mm. What is influencing your fundraising strategy in relation to those kind of challenges. sort of quite unique challenges yeah. for this organisation? I think they are unique, but then I also think there's a lot of stigma across a lot of different causes mm. as well. But yeah, you're you're right. We live in, um, essentially, our society has been very patriarchal and we know that violence against women and girls exists because of the, the inequalities essentially between men and women. So traditionally, men have had much more power and some of those men have abused that power. So the majority um, of violence against women and girls is perpetrated by men. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all men are perpetrators, but it is a gendered, a gendered crime. It can happen to anyone. Men are affected, LGBT people are affected, but yet women and children are most likely to be affected. There is stigma and um, it is difficult for survivors and victims, however they identify, to maybe talk about their experiences. We definitely find that lots of our supporters maybe have personal lived experience, especially in public community and events people might not necessarily identify as a survivor but they often as part of their recovery and rebuilding their life they really want to become empowered so they might um, undertake a challenge and, and want to kind of give back and sometimes we don't know about that they don't necessarily disclose they don't want to um, have that history as part of their kind of current current life whereas others really strongly identify with being a survivor um, and and how that's kind of shaped their shape their identity today so yeah our, the fundraising strategy which is almost written cuts across every income stream really because abuse does not discriminate so mm -hmm. we have lots of supporters and, and major donors who might have personal experience it's really strongly evidenced so organizations and corporations like trusts and foundations can see this is a real challenge um, the inequalities in, in society exist so um, we have a really fantastic case for support and, and theory of change that those types of institutions um, support. Movement building is definitely um, a real priority for us so um, making sure that we're attracting supporters. We get a huge number of unsolicited donations from people online who really want to support and give in some way so we're looking at how do we build on that and how do we invest in that area and then I've gone full circle here, but back to community and events, um, making sure that we're kind of building offline regional movements. So where we have the refuges um, up and down the country or um, outreach programmes that we're building um, communities in those geographical areas to support local local services. So it's a nice holistic approach sounds ambitious yeah, i can see why ambitious. there would be quite a big uh, culture change organizationally as well to be like the first director of fundraising and look across all these different income streams sounds good um let's talk about the institute of fundraising and its change collective strategy feels to me like it's been over the past 18 months or so but i think that's possibly partly because i was like on another planet on maternity leave for the 18 months prior to that and also some of the stuff has been the building blocks to get to this strategy. So as I understand it, there was this 2013 report with Barrow Cadbury and Institute of Fundraising, which saw that the fundraising profession was less diverse than the charity sector, which was less diverse than the population. The IUF then went on to employ Elizabeth Balgobin, who did a piece of work and recommended the development of an EDI panel. There was then more analysis. So this feels like all of this has been going on behind the scenes and is really 
great to be able to to look back and see all of this. Development of the Theory of Change, which was the Manifesto for Change. Another report, Who Isn't in the Room, which I think might have been in collaboration with PwC. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And then further analysis and um, sort of consultation with people across the sector. And we have this change collective strategy. Mm -hmm. So really robust journey it sounds like to yeah, me. Is I was about reasonable? to say you've given a really fantastic overview of that the, the only thing I would add is that the um the panel the expert panel um was 19 volunteers um who've been working together over the last year or 18 months actually to be um brutally honest with the with the IOF and with each other about what these problems are and what these inequalities are but fiercely motivated and positive and forward thinking um, and I just don't think it probably would have happened or got to this point of being such a um, authentic and ambitious strategy for change so it's been fantastic to be a part of it and what's really heartening as well is that the panel is actually coming to an end and the corporate structure of the IOF's board the EDI theme is now a committee so the IOF are busy recruiting for for members there the fact that that legacy will now live on and so there'll be accountability with, with the institute too is is brilliant so we know from a business perspective that it pays for an organization to be diverse so I think one of the key stats from from the IOF it quotes McKinsey which said that the diversity dividend is between 15 and 35 percent I think if any fundraising director could think that they have had like a 35% advantage on their competitors yeah. <laughs> they'd be like let's get on with this I mean the, there's a moral case for it as well but if you needed financial or economic case for investment then that stat alone I think sort of speaks to that should we talk about the strategy itself so do you want to give us a yeah, bit of a of summary course. of it I'll just recap the reasons why we yeah, should why it. we should be doing this so yeah I think you're absolutely correct this is morally the right thing to do and ethically the right thing to do everyone should be able to be themselves and feel valued and supported to do their best work regardless of their identity or background everyone deserves the opportunity to develop skills and talents to to get to their full potential in a supportive environment then, as you say, from a, a kind of business perspective, if people are able to be themselves um, at work and, and feel happy and empowered, then they're going to be more productive. And it's also vital for the sort of sustainability of, of business. If you have diversity of thought and you are better able to represent the communities that you serve, you're definitely going to have a better outcome moving forward. And as you touched upon, um, this strategy is definitely underpinned by lots of research and evidence and as you say it really just shines a light on the inequalities that exist in our society the fact that we are pretty divided and there's quite polarized views in our society and we need to encourage togetherness and collaboration and we need to make sure that we're having a kind of intersectional approach so the goals of the strategy the first one is around essentially widening participation making sure that the entry to the fundraising profession is diverse. Also that retention and progression is equal, we're all equal at work and we all get equal pay. And the last one is that the fundraising profession, the fundraising sector is actually acknowledged at, you know, having best practice and being really inclusive. The, the particular priorities that the um, strategy is focused on, um, based on our 
18 months of, of work as a, as a volunteer group is the underrepresentation of LGBT people, underrepresentation of disabled people, and underrepresentation of BAME people. Let's do a bit of a what do things actually mean? Yeah. Lived experience. Someone with lived experience has personal knowledge about the world um, and their lives um, that they've gained through direct first-hand experience rather than representations being kind of constructed by other people. And that is particularly relevant for people with protected characteristics. Mm. There are nine protected characteristics, so nine types of discrimination outlined in the Equality Act. Those characteristics are age, gender reassignment, married or being in a civil partnership, pregnant or on maternity, people with disabilities, race, religion and faith, sex and sexual orientation, LGBT people. So that stands for lesbian, gay, bi and trans people. There's often a plus at the end because there's lots of other identities as well. But generally speaking, the umbrella acronym is LGBT. What about when people say LGBT plus LGBTQ. Q, um, there's two Qs actually. So there's one for, stands for questioning. Another Q stands for queer. I stands for intersex. But actually I think there's about 16 or 17 um, initials. In the law and the Equality Act, they use, and and our government uses LGBT+. plus. That's really helpful. (laughs) Another term and phrase that is used is intersectionality. So that's the complex and cumulative way that different forms of those discrimination, like racism, sexism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, classism, disability discrimination overlap and affect people so you could be a lesbian woman of color with a disability for example so you've got three protected characteristics Mm. so even more likely to face the challenges and discrimination that kind of exists in our society BAME people black asian and minority ethnic people often again that might have an r on the end which is BAME and the r stands for refugees people are more often using the phrases people of colour or women of colour, and that's how they identify, which, again, language and terminology is kind of ever-changing. So Mm. making sure that you're keeping up to date with what's appropriate and and what's accepted is important. It's all of our responsibility to kind of learn this is what's written in the law. We all have a kind of duty to to understand more. You Mm. can't just say it's because I'm a bit old that I don't really get what LGBT is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, you have to... (laughs) You have to move with the time and these identities have existed the whole time, your whole, you know, people's lives. What I would say is get educated, educate yourself. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Take responsibility and and also it's the organisation's responsibility as well to to train and make sure that those, that information is there and accessible for all to Mm. to understand. The second is the um, fact that women are underrepresented in senior roles and leadership. The majority of our profession is women, about 76%, but that's not reflected um, at senior levels as well. So obviously we want to recruit more men into the sector, but um, we want to make sure that we're balancing out women in those leadership roles. We've mentioned the fact that there's underrepresentation of LGBT people, but also there are LGBT people within our organisations. However, they might not 
be comfortable in being out or be themselves at work. So it's making sure that if you have or you will have LGBT people in your workplace, making sure that they can be themselves at work is really important. Social class cuts across all of these different themes as well. Whilst that's not a protected characteristic, it's incredibly important. Perhaps I should have started off by this, but I think that the sector is kind of viewed as a white, middle-class, middle-aged profession Mm -hmm. with cisgender, um, non-LGBT people within it. So it's really important that there's there's not that sort of feeling of the um, the establishment that is present in other areas of our society. We look at Parliament; ninety four percent of parliamentarians are white. So we need to make sure that we are not echoing those establishments and that we're better representing the diverse society and cultures mm, that we have. This is skipping around a bit, but just going back to the vision to be equal, diverse and inclusive profession where everybody is the right fit. And this notion of being the right fit kind of, it kind of grated a little bit because who's judging who is the right fit? I'm guessing that the IOF feels that it's implicit here that that people feel that they are the right fit because it's about belonging, isn't it? It's about feeling like you belong somewhere. The strategy to me feels like it's it's obviously kind of quite nascent because there's still a huge focus on research, which is great because it's Mm going to be really well informed but there's focus on things like recruitment and recruitment toolkits and that sort of early stage stuff whereas it's fine if we recruit a diverse workforce but it's actually how do we retain people and make people feel like they actually belong yeah I think you're you're really right it does need to be um, a combination of all these things policy is incredibly important but actually what's really important too is leadership and the leadership of an organisation um, really being change makers and embedding a culture of inclusivity and diversity in the workplace. And anyone can be a leader. Obviously, there's this more traditional hierarchy, but mm-hmm. anyone can be a leader at any level. And it's, yeah, it's really, really vital that organisations um, adapt and understand this change. The other thing that I thought would be helpful to talk through is that the the way that the strategy has been developed is based on the social model of disability. The social model of disability is a way of viewing the world developed by disabled people, which says that people are disabled by barriers in society, not by their physical or mental impairment, neurodiversity or other difference. So those barriers can be physical, like workplaces and buildings, or they can be caused by people's attitudes to difference, like assuming that disabled people are unable to do certain things. So there are 16 initial activities that the strategy is looking to deliver. One of them is about developing the Institute of Fundraising's approach to affinity networks. You've done some of this before in previous organisations, haven't you? So do you want to tell us like what is an affinity network and how can you go about developing them and why they are so brilliant? Of course. Essentially, underrepresented communities, people need to be able to come together to discuss what it's like to be them and what it's like to have some of the challenges and discrimination that they face. And they can share those experiences and find solidarity and help work out what it is that they need to change within an organisation or within society for them to be able to be empowered. So yeah, at the NSPCC, I was part of the LGBT network or affinity group. It's really important that they're employee-led, but what is also crucial is that they're supported by the leadership 
And often a team, someone like HR, who will have more practical ways to be able to kind of support them. Again, what's really important in my sort of experience is that these um, aren't as much as you need the specialisms within those um, different networks. They ideally need to be kind of co-created or you need to to at least meet with the other affinity networks because we talked before about intersectionality. So there are people Mm. that might think, okay, I could join four affinity networks. Which one am I going to join? And they don't necessarily feel represented as a whole. So it, you know, you do need that holistic approach. And also there might be a particular group that might have a greater number of people or they might have a role where they're more able to affect change. They might have um, different kind of access to leadership or, or such like. So they do need to make sure that they're, each group is supported equally as well. So yeah, the Institute and the strategy is saying that we're going to create some of those networks across the sector. Some already exist. There's Black Fundraisers UK and there's a Christian organisation special interest group with the Institute, but there's definitely more more needed. And we're also going to encourage organisations that haven't already got those affinity networks to, to set them up. It's definitely something that we're looking into here at Refuge and a couple of members of my team are hopefully taking taking the lead in that as well and I'm gonna definitely support them okay and role models I think in your little profile piece for the EDI panel it says you're proud role model what does it mean to you so during my time um at Stonewall actually um the organization has a strong emphasis on on role models and runs lots of programs to empower people to be good role models so I definitely have them to thank for being able to feel like I'm a role model and I think it's really about demonstrating kind of confidence and leadership in yourself and being calm and positive and unapologetic about your your views. Don't be afraid to kind of be unique. Celebrate that difference that you might have. Be proud of the person that you are, which is sometimes easy and sometimes more challenging depending on which context you're in. I definitely try and talk to other people and communicate and listen being a role model doesn't just mean about standing on a kind of a state box and talking about my views and my opinions, but making sure that you're you're listening to others and you're constantly learning and, and showing kind of respect for other people. And I feel a huge accountability to constantly learn and understand. You know, I've made loads of mistakes in my career and I'm really okay with admitting what those are and the fact that I've kind of learned from them, but we're all fallible, we all make mistakes. I read an incredible book, lots of my colleagues read it as well. It's written by the amazing Rene Edo Lodge and it's called Why I'm No Longer Speaking to White People About Race. I didn't think I was a privileged person, but actually I've got huge amounts of of privilege you know, I don't have structural discrimination of my race. Um, it's the kind of absence of your race being viewed as a problem first and foremost. And it's a really kind of illuminating look at society. And it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable and it makes you have those kind of uncomfortable conversations and to deal with any of these problems we need to have those uncomfortable conversations so being a role model I think is getting uncomfortable and making people have uncomfortable conversations and understanding what your kind of personal values and your leadership values are so mine are definitely about empowering my team it might sound cliche but I hope that I personify and embody empowerment every day and also making sure that I'm authentic. I bring my whole self to work. Um, My team know exactly who I am and being inclusive as well. So making sure that everyone has those equal opportunities. But you can be a role model 
any level in any sector. It doesn't necessarily mean because you um, empower um, or leadership that that's why you're a role model. You can be a role model um, at any level. It is obviously increasingly important that you're a good role model if you have got power and privilege. But yeah, anyone can be one. So go out there and start role modelling everyone. Yeah, <laughs> okay. It's a good action for everybody. Another part, I guess, of being a role model and certainly talking about different parts of my identity is that I generally find it quite easy to come out as gay. And I think that's because I'm married. I've got an amazing wife, but that means that I'm kind of part of an institution um, that exists in our society and that is kind of okay and that I'm a kind of a good gay in um, in quote marks but it might be much more difficult for someone that is young or bi or not in a relationship that's single um that's definitely more more difficult and and less accepted but because yeah I'm kind of middle-aged I'm white I'm clearly privileged it's it's fine for me and my you know rosy rosy life and rosy wife to be out but you know we've been victim of hate crime and it is really difficult so it is kind of balanced with, um, I do find it easy sometimes to just come out, or, you know, I'll tell anyone anything in any setting, but it does also bring a degree of like vulnerability. And as I said, it, it's sort of easier for me in, in many respects. So think about whether it's safe for you to come out or safe for you to talk about part of your identity that might be might be hidden. I've certainly probably gone to the extreme, I remember once I was on a train full of, um, I'm going to say sports fans, I'm not going to stereotype, and there was some kind of um, homophobia taking place and I started challenging it. And my wife was like, you don't have to challenge it every single time you hear it. And I was like, I do, it's my responsibility. You know, I need to help change society. And she was like, well, you've got to protect yourself. You've got to be safe. Um, so you don't have to be a, a role model all of the time. Sometimes if it's, you know, it's not safe or you're exhausted, it's, it can be quite tiring, as I said, continually talking about your personal experience. So um, just think about when it's right, right for you. Something that made me reflect on, I guess, my own privilege is when a male gay friend put on Facebook that he was having to check... Um, I don't know where it is that you check, but is it like the foreign office or something? Like of places where you, to go on holiday, yeah, where you can yeah. be openly gay. Mm. Like, So I don't even know if it's the foreign office, for example, because that's not something that I would have ever thought of, yeah. ha of having to do. But, you know, it's fine. Again, like if you're privileged and you can choose to, where, where you want to pay to go on holiday, that's great. But actually that's not representative of the majority of um, mm. the LGBT um, community so yeah it, there are challenges and you know hate crime towards LGBT people is increasing mm. um, you know we've, there's been equal marriage since 2013 but sadly that does not mean that society are, are accepting. So something that was quite interesting for me <laughs> when I was reading the strategy was that it said we need the support of corporate partners and corporate partners to the sector to be able to deliver the strategy. Yeah. But I wasn't clear on what their role was or how, as a sector, we need to be engaging with them. So I think if you are a um, organisation, a charity that's got corporate supporters, it's probably a little bit easier because you can ideally ask your wonderful account managers or relationship managers to knock on the door and ask to talk to the relevant people inside those organisations. But often the corporate private sector is a little bit further ahead than us or they're at least further ahead in understanding that it is an issue whether it's the gender pay gap or another again I'm sort of drawing on my stonewall experience here but 
there's a fantastic program that Stonewall um, runs, the Diversity Champions Program and the um, Workplace Equality Index. There are third sector organisations that participate, but corporates are really a leading force in making sure that their organisations are diverse and inclusive. And they've come a long way in the last 20 years. So if they've got more resource or they've already done some of this work, they might have already set up their affinity networks or they might already have their equality, diversity and inclusion strategies. So reaching out and asking them for help and asking them what they've learnt, inviting them perhaps in to do things like a lunch and learn. There's a kind of wealth of experience out there and they probably would have invested in this area. So if they're your supporter, they might want to share that learning with you um, and share some of their resources as well. Sometimes it can be a bit daunting if you're not very far along the journey is you know where do you start and this is going to take a lot of internal resource but reach out to others people have you know done this before you so um learn learn from them thank you that's really helpful so as i mentioned before the the strategy these 16 initial activities there are things around edi training for institute of fundraising staff trustees and volunteers reviewing accessibility inclusion of events commissioning lots of research, delivering an EDI recruitment toolkit, engaging with disabled fundraisers and organisations to identify actions around supporting more disabled people into fundraising, affinity networks, which we've touched on, developing the Diversity Access Fund, which is in place to get more BAME disabled and LGBT fundraisers to events, flexible working policy, what else have we got? Engaging with partner organisations to discuss and deliver a coordinated cross-sector approach to EDI. So I thought this was really interesting as well. My initial assumption was this was just about fundraising, which I guess the parameters are really around fundraising, but that there's lots of broader cross-sector collaboration going on with um, Akiva, NCBO, Association of Charitable Foundations, um, yeah. HR, Charities Charity HR Network, Network yeah. yeah, Case Europe, Charity Commission. Yeah. yeah, so there's loads of there's, there are loads of other conversations and sort of co-creation work going on. Yeah. The aim is to launch the EDI pledge at convention next year, and finally, uh, looking to gauge an interest in a sector-wide initiative to promote the fundraising profession to educational establishments. So there's loads of really amazing positive stuff going on here as I mentioned and as you would expect from the first strategy it's very much focused on getting the fundamental things in place around Mm -hmm. getting organizations to the point of being more diverse yeah so my question for you is how do fundraisers working in charities every day who aren't responsible for recruitment who aren't involved in EDI research Mm -hmm. um, who aren't involved in setting up a flexible working policy how do we as normal people just doing our day jobs help to make organizations places where everybody feels like they belong there Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a really good question thanks Beth it's my first good question no they're all very good (laughs) um I think it's yeah it's a really really good question and one that I'm sure there are lots of different answers and suggestions to I'm just thinking about one um that my me and my team did a couple of weeks ago is that we set up a book club for books that shine a light and and share stories essentially about people that have come from either challenging backgrounds or have got those different protected characteristics so we are educating ourselves you know things like 
feminism um, and things like, you know, all for sexual violence because it's particularly pertinent to our work. But all all different types of kind of lived experiences is really important. And then we're kind of talking about it. So that just helps raise awareness and raise profile and educate ourselves about what some of the problems are I'd really start by just reading the strategy like each and every person in our amazing profession understanding what it is educating yourself around all of the different terminology and acronyms that there are encouraging other people to read it whether it's your boss whether it's a peer whether you know whether it is your chief exec or HR team to to read and understand it then I think that's going to definitely be helpful have a look you might already have an amazing equality diversity inclusion strategy and policy within your organization but is it kind of mainstream do people even understand it exists mm. and what does what does that mean definitely talk to your colleagues and talk to other people with that lived experience as I've said but I'd really caveat that with the fact that it's not your co-workers responsibility to educate you um that can be quite exhausting especially if you're the kind of only person um within within an organization that identifies or has you know a characteristic um in that way that can be quite a lot of kind of emotional labor and stress and exhaustion to always be the one person that people are going to so it's not their responsibility to educate you you need to educate yourself but at the same time balance that with with getting lived experience or reading about other lived experience or reaching out um social media is in lots of respects it's a helpful place to learn it also is quite unhelpful I think as well and can be quite toxic too so just be careful there and I think as much as you said you know you, you might not be responsible for HR recruitment but if you're recruiting someone talk to the the HR team you might have processes in place but question where do you advertise your roles are you using agencies that specialize in um diverse candidates making your applications anonymous so removing the opportunity for kind of conscious and unconscious bias taking off names taking off education um i didn't go to university and so many job descriptions i've read it's like essential um have a degree so taking those types of things off job descriptions as well so reviewing them flexible working we've touched on that for parents carers um disabled people this is really, really important to have more dynamic and agile, flexible working policies. I guess hold yourself to account, check your own privileges and biases and assumptions that you kind of make. Try and become a bit awakened to the fact that you probably will have some discriminations. And that's because we live in a society that is is full of them and um, it's just learn. It's just um, it's just there and it exists. So challenge challenging ourselves that's quite a few things. Yeah, there's quite a lot of practical <laughs> actions. Um, there's, probably, there's probably more. There's probably really <laughs> obvious ones that I've um, I've missed out. But oh, integrating it into your kind of strategies and plans. And if you're working in, I don't know, individual giving, looking at your photography, does it represent society? Does it represent the the communities and the beneficiaries or the service users, whoever it might be that you're you're kind of serving? Just being aware of it and making sure that you factor it into everything you do, really, which is mm. definitely something that I. Try try and try and do yeah great okay to finish off with can you tell us which book person or ethos has inspired your work so because I've listened to your amazing podcast before I knew that this question was coming because I think if you'd asked me straight out I'd have been like ah I don't know (laughs) I'm not like a natural reader I don't know if that's the thing but yeah I'm not massively yeah academic I really like listening to things and we all take on information in different ways so I think that question would have definitely thrown me anyway because the topic is diversity I thought 
a better shoehorn and amazing diversity yeah. book, book in here. Sure. Um, so the author is um, a legend who I've had the privilege to work with, and that is the wonderful June Sarpong. She's written a fantastic book called Diversify, and it's a really good book if you're at the start of your kind of journey of understanding all things EDI. It's a really good place to start to kind of research diversity um, and discrimination and what that looks like across the board. It's jam-packed full of kind of personal stories, which help brings it alive. And it also has some steps on your the start of your journey to better inclusion. Um, I think she actually also spoke at the IOF um, convention a few oh, yeah, years ago. Did, but yeah, yeah. I, um, I did an event with her at Stonewall. And yeah, she's what an amazing ally to the LGBT community and just generally all round good egg. And also 90s amazing star from telly and yeah Amazing. I think that's my that's my recollection of June Sapong is is think T4 on the beach T4 on the beach is awesome <laughs> yeah. not the fact that she's like an incredible patron for the Princess Trust last 10 years I and know stuff like it's that. really bad isn't it no I'm, I was exactly the same <laughs> um so yeah that's definitely my um that's definitely my top my top tip um, I'm about to read a book called New Power and it's essentially looking at why institutions and old power are kind of failing and the kind of new age of mass participation is winning and looking at why that why that is I haven't read it yet but I think it kind of looks at movements like Me Too um, mm. and some of those kind of social and digital movements are becoming really really successful so yeah that's on my reading list good okay brilliant well let's wrap it up there thank you very much for joining me or letting me join you rather thank you thanks for coming in it's been great to chat the three takeaways for me from this podcast are first of all read the change collective strategy We all saw the Charity So White hashtag a few weeks ago and it's great to see that there are plans for this to develop further. It's a great initiative. But I did wonder how many people tweeting about it had actually engaged with the EDI strategy and considered how they could support the Change Collective movement. So I'd recommend starting with this strategy that's grown from really robust research and understanding and a commitment to equality, diversity and inclusion. Secondly, educate yourself. You could start with a straightforward book like Louise recommended from 90s legend June Sarpong or go straight in with the Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo-Lodge. There are loads of other resources out there too. For example, fundraising think tank Rajari, no idea if that is the right way to pronounce it, is running a project to explore gender issues in fundraising and that is definitely worth checking out. Thirdly, drawing on Louise's suggestions, you could think about the practical actions that you can take. How could you be a role model? How could you be an ally? And how could you integrate the strategy into your work? I hope you found this podcast useful and enjoyable. And if so, please rate it. Thanks so much. Catch you next time.